Before I introduce our guest speaker today, I wanted to give you a report on Impact 2020. Uh, Impact 2020, most of you know, is our effort to ne uh, raise the necessary resources to support the 19 different partners that we have here in the Metroplex who are doing ministry here, as well as 21 partners uh, around the world, and uh, also to plant new churches all across the United States in spiritually under-resourced areas, and our goal is to plant 12 brand new churches over the next four years. And uh, I've got good news for you and bad news. Uh, the bad news is we did not hit our goal. It's not real bad news because we came very, very close. And because of the generosity and the faithfulness of our people, we're gonna be able to do most of the initiatives that we outlined in the project of this. I'm encouraged because it's the largest single offering that our people have ever given and committed to. Our people uh, gave $2 million in cash and committed another $11 million over the next uh, four years. Very, very cool. An all-time record of $13 million that we're going to be able to uh, put into action to invest here and around the world. And one of the places where we're investing that money is in South Africa. And we're privileged to have back with us uh, today uh, Trevor Downham, who's the pastor of the Norwegian Settlers Church in Port Shepston, uh, South Africa. We've had a long-term relationship with them. Many of you have been on teams. In fact, if you've traveled to South Africa on one of our, uh, on one of our trips at either of our, any of our campuses or here in the room, would you just raise your hand if you've been a part of that? Would you just raise your hand so we can see you? That's great. Would you give a, Le a Lake Point welcome to Trevor Downham? <laughs> Trevor, great to have you with us. Thank you so welcome. much. Thank you so much, Pastor Steve. Just uh, for this opportunity to be back here again with you. And at the outset, just to say thank you and to affirm everything that Pastor Steve has said, the great blessing that you have been to us in South Africa and uh, your blessing of finance and teams. Thank you guys for coming out there. Thank you for helping us uh, face the challenges that we face. I wanna get straight into what I have to say to you today. I'm gonna read a, a passage of scripture to you in a moment. If you have your Bible, 2 Timothy 4 is where we are going. But before we do that, let me just uh, explain this. The, it's the context of this particular passage that I will read to you that is really kind of the most meaningful aspect of what we're gonna talk about. The man who wrote this verse is a man by the name of Paul. He was one of the founding apostles of the church and a, a man highly respected. He finds himself at the end of his life on death row. He knows he's on death row. He can kind of hear them sharpening the ax, waiting to, to do him in. And he's in a stinking prison, place where he's been beaten probably, no food, desperately thirsty. Calls for a piece of paper, and he writes the great letter of 2 Timothy. He did not know when he wrote this letter that we would be studying it and we would be taking so much from it as per our own Christian experience. But he writes to his young protege, his name is Timothy, these great words. And we call these words deathbed talk. You know, deathbed talk, he's on his deathbed, he knows he's on death row, it's not long to go. Deathbed talk, people, is always the most meaningful. Nobody on their deathbed is too worried about the superficialities of life because on your deathbed, when you know that you don't have long to go, you will use your best time to say the best things. And this is what he says to his young man, friend, follower, Timothy. Verse six. 
for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for this great church. Thank you for their mission into the community and the world around them. Thank you that as they seek to, to share your gospel in so many wonderful and creative ways, we pray you go before them. Thank you that you've given us all your word to guide us through life and to show us the things that are important and the things at the end of the day that really count. I pray, Lord, that as we spend this time now just focusing on this particular passage written by an amazing man under incredible circumstances, won't you speak to our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things at the end of the life that really count. And that when the curtain closes on, on your life, there will really be these three things that you will measure for eternity the content or the context of your particular life. And he says to us three things. These are three things that really, at the end of the day, only these things count. He says, first of all, have you run the race? Have you run with hope, the race of perseverance? Have you kept the faith? You cannot keep something you do not have. So I hope you all have this faith he's referring to. But the third thing that he says is, have you fought the good fight? And it's this that I would like to speak about today, what it means to fight the good fight. Now, there exists in the world today a movement out there that would seek to make the church a little bit less offensive, maybe a little bit more passive. You see, the world will never be offended by a, a body of people who are kind of neutral and just nice. The world would like for us just to be nice people. They don't like the radical nature of our faith. They don't like the fact that we have something that we're willing to die for. They don't like the fact that there is something in life that stands for eternity and we seek to build that. They would rather that we just settle for passivity, neutralness, and just being nice people. If you go to a bookshop nowadays and you want to buy a, a hymn book, you will find that there are certain hymns that have been left out of the hymn book. They're just far too radical. They, you, you will battle to find a hymn book that has onward Christian soldiers marching as to war in it. I grew up on that hymn. You're going to battle to find a, a hymn book that has stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. You're going to battle to find a, a hymn book that says, fight the good fight with all thy might. You're going to not find that because the world is sought to say, let's make them less offensive and let's just make them nice people. But as I read the Bible, people, I cannot help but notice that it's full of really great fights. 
I see the great fight that took place between David and Goliath that day. We read so much about the fight between Gideon and the Midianites and Joshua and the Amorites and Jehoshaphat going into war with the worship team in the front of him. We read the entire scriptures is, is really a book about the fight between good and, and, and evil, culminating in the book of Revelation with the victory of Christ. So we, we see this theme of war running all through scripture. Now we do know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You do know that. We wrestle against principalities and powers of darkness in, in the outer realm. That, that's where our real enemy is. But the tragic thing is, the world is just trying to make us less than we are, make us less offensive and just nice people. I have nothing against nice people, but that's not what the church is all about. In Matthew 11, verse 12, Jesus speaks of, he says this of John the Baptist, who for many people would not have been regarded as a nice person. He was just far too radical. And Jesus, when speaking about John the Baptist, he says this, that the kingdom of heaven is taken by forceful men. It's not taken by passive, wimpish people who sit and care, case, sirrah, sirrah, what will be, will be. Those people never take the kingdom. And God is wanting for us to recognize what this war that we talk about is all about. Paul, who wrote that amazing passage we read, picks up on the theme in Ephesians 6 where he speaks about the armor of God. You see, he's telling you, you're in a war and you need to have the armor. He talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes shod with the shoes of, the feet shod with the shoes of peace and taking the gospel and the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. He's telling you something. He's telling you this is the armament, this is what you need in the realm of a war. It's a spiritual war, but it evidences itself sometimes in a physical way. Now, we wanna pick up on this theme today. Now, if you went to military school, there would be a, a, a lot of lectures that you would have to, have to sit and listen to, and, and they would tell you the rules of war. You know, the Geneva Convention and other things have spoken about the rules of war, and they don't seem to abide by these things particularly, but there are rules of war. But I don't wanna talk about that. I wanna talk about the rules for war. If you wanna make and fight the good fight, you have gotta understand the rules, and we draw them from a military understanding. The first rule of war is you have to have a will to war. You got to have, it's, it's pointless having a great army with no will, with no cause to fight for. You have to have a will to war. Now this will to war is in your mind. That's where it begins. It evidences itself in the things that you do. But a, a, a soldier with a will to war is better than a, a thousand soldiers with no will to war in all the armaments in the world. We have to have a will to war. We have to have a cause for which to die, and it begins in your mind. Now, your mind is the seat of your character. So this is where we're gonna go. If I were to just draw this for you in a very simple kind of a way, I wanna just draw a north so crosses kind of a thing here, and we will try and fill in all of the blanks. In the top left-hand corner here, I'd like to draw, and I'm very bad at drawing, but I wanna draw for you an iceberg. An iceberg. There it is. You all know that 80 to 90% of an iceberg lies below the waterline. The top 20% of the iceberg is all that you can see. Kind of like us. You will never know more than 20% of who I am because that's all that you can see. But only God and I know what's going on below the waterline. And this is where your character lives. 
This is where your value system hangs out. This is where your motives and your intentions and the dreams of your life live. They live and they come out from below the waterline where nobody else other than you and God go. So this is where we have to start building. If you're gonna fight a good fight, you need to start at the point of a character where we begin to fight this war in our minds, determining to have a better character. Now have a look at David, King David, who was a great battle man. He began his war before he fought with Goliath. You know, he all had to fight with lions and bears. That's what he says. And when he stood before King Saul, and Saul said to him, what entitles you to fight this great giant? And what he would say, he says, I have done the, the homework. I have done the work. I have fought lions and bears where there was nobody to applaud me. There was nobody to watch me. I have done the work in the dark. Now I'm entitled to fight the giant in the light. You see, people, there is a place where we have to go in order to develop character that nobody else goes. There are lions and there are bears that need to be fought and won over in private before we get to fight the giants in public. It's here that all of that takes place. Let me tell you why. You see, when you begin to go to war, there will be tests. You will be tested in this place called war. Kind of like a yacht. A yacht is out there and this yacht is uh, sailing along and it looks so impressive. It looks beautiful on the outside. But then all of a sudden the wind begins to blow and the waves begin to rise and that yacht is now about to be tested. And as the wind begins to blow and the, and the, and the miles an hour begin to, and the waves begin to come and the storm begins to crush and the lightning begins to flash, this little yacht is in a test. And we look at the yacht and we say, how are you gonna stand the test? And many of them do, some of them don't. You see, if this yacht has nothing below the waterline, when the slightest bigger breeze comes, it just falls over, it fails the test. It is what is happening below the waterline where no one else sees that keeps this yacht afloat at the time of the test. It's called the keel. And a lot of percentage of the weight of a yacht is found down here. It has no other function than being able to keep you stable in the midst of a storm. Now, I need to give you a biblical example of this. I have a great one. His name was Samson. Samson had all the strength on the outside. Man, I'm toting to this up here. He looked incredibly impressive, incredibly strong. He had all the strength and the charisma on the outside, and people thought, wow, what a guy. But let me tell you, charisma and strength is totally overrated if there's nothing below the waterline. Samson had plenty of charisma, but he had zero character. And so when his character failed, he failed with it. You can be as strong as you like and look as impressive as you like, but if you have nothing below the waterline, you will fail the tests of life. It's all about what's below the waterline. How do we get this kind of character? Let me draw you just a, another picture. This is of a candle. It's of a flame, a flame. I wanna suggest to you today that if you wanna develop good Christian character, we need to fly closer to the flame. Let me explain. When we look in scripture, we see how God is, is pictured sometimes. We read that our God is a consuming 
fire. And the closer you get to him, the hotter it becomes. And as you draw closer to the holiness of God, which is the picture of the flame, and he is a consuming flyer, as you get closer to him, all the rubbish and the junk and the bad attitudes and the negative mindsets and the wrong things in your life begin to get burnt away. But as you get closer to the heat of God's holiness, you become more with character, but it's an uncomfortable place to be. And by human nature, we wanna keep away from the heat. It's too hot close to God. In Isaiah chapter six, we have the picture of this. Isaiah came into the temple, he saw the Lord. He was high and he was lifted up and his train filled the temple. And the angels, they were crying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And Isaiah knew what he had to do. He didn't stand and high five with God and he's not my best buddy, he's not my, my homeboy. He is a very holy God. And Isaiah did what anyone would have done in the presence of so holy a God. He fell flat on his face and these words came out of his mouth, man, I'm dead, I am done. I am in the presence of a holy God. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a generation of people with unclean lips. I am dead. I have come so close to the holiness of God. And God sends an angel across to the altar with some tongs. And with those tongs, he takes a coal of fire and he comes and he touches Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah is cleansed from all the junk and the rubbish in his life. And then the words of God say, who will go for me? And Isaiah then, and only then, he puts up his hand and says, God, I'll go. I have been cleansed as I've drawn closer to the flame of your holiness. People, listen. We do not want to play games with a holy God. You don't want to mess with a holy God. God, but we do want to draw closer despite the fact it's uncomfortable. I know that, and God's holiness will make certain demands of us. Do not be afraid to fly closer to the flame. The next thing kind of flows out of that. When you've flown close to the flame, that's just a line. We all know as Christians that there are certain lines that we do not want to cross. But as I read the Bible, I see great men who have failed at this particular point where they get too close to the line. I think of Solomon and he flirted with the flesh and he got so close to the line. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes talks about his journey and his desire to find what true happiness is all about. And so he begins a journey on exalting his self. You see, the word for flesh in the Bible is self in the New Testament. And the flesh has to die as it gets closer to the flame. The flesh will automatically die and the self will become less. There is only one good self apparently and it's a dead one. Despite what the world will tell you. What do we teach our kids? We teach our kids about, about exalting themselves. Be yourself, find yourself. You know, stand up for yourself, express yourself. The Apostle Paul thinks nothing of that. He says that's garbage. He said, where do we find that in the Bible? All we read about ourselves in the Bible is that there is a place where we sacrifice ourselves. And we sacrifice ourselves at the altar. There is an altar on this side of the line. Don't flirt with the flesh on this side like Solomon did and he nearly lost it. 
he flirted too much with the flesh. All those women that came into his life and they brought their idols and their, their gods of stone and wood in there and he almost fell for it. He walked too close to the line. In order to walk closer to the line, we need to keep as far from it as we can. There's an altar. Paul says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. He says, I am crucified with Christ. I am dead to myself. My ego, my agenda has died to take on that which is of God. And we need to stay further from the line. Let me move on and suggest to you this, that the second rule of war, in fact, there's a couple, this is all about building character. One of the other rules for war is a rule that suggests that the first thing you need to do if you're in a fight is you need to take the high ground. All military people are seeking to take the high ground first. It is militarily far easier to fight from the advantage of being higher than it is from fighting from the valley below. And I read about this, and I, I read in Exodus 17 about the great fight that took place between Joshua in the valley against the Amalekites and, and, and Moses, where's Moses? He's not in the fight in the valley down here. He's not down here, but Moses is with Aaron and her. And the three of them are up on the top of the mountain and they're holding up Moses' hands and they're seeking just to, to sustain him because they've made the connection between the victory in the valley and the place of prayer on the mountain. Before you go into battle, we need to make sure that we have won the victory at the place of prayer. Prayer seems so nebulous. Bunch of people sitting, speaking words. How can that possibly be so powerful? But Aaron and her made the connection. They looked at the battle in the valley and they said to Moses, hey Moses, we've noticed something. We noticed that when you are praying, we win. When you're not praying for whatever reason because you're tired or your arms are, are exhausted, we notice that when you're not praying, we lose the battle in the valley. Moses, keep praying. And they held up his hands. They made the connection between victory is not found in the battlefield but is won at the place of prayer. That's why I love your church. We periodically in South Africa get a, a form that we have to fill and say, what can we pray for you guys? <laughs> you have no idea. You have no idea what that does for us. To know that there are people over here holding up their hands, winning the battle at the place of prayer, taking the high ground while we in our context and you and yours fight the battle that is taking place in the valley. You've got to win the battle on the high ground first. Rule number three of war is it says this, that he who is the most aggressive wins the day. That's a great military principle. He who is the most aggressive wins the day. Apparently it's all in the eyebrows. On the <laughs> he is the most aggressive. You know, it's a military principle, and you can see it worked out. Have a look at David. Have a look at David. There was David. It says this, and, and, and I, this, this passage is, is crazy. Verse 25 of 1 Samuel 17 is the great story of David and Goliath and their conflict and the great battle. In verse 25, we read how David came down 
after many days, and the Israelites were hiding behind the rocks as the Philistines abused them and shouted verbally ugly things at them, bringing down the nature of their God. And he says this, do you see how this man keeps coming out? The men of Israel are talking to each other. When is this guy gonna go away? He's intimidating us, he's scaring us, he's threatening us, and apparently for 40 days, Goliath came out and screamed across the valley his abuse and belittling of the people of Israel and Jehovah their God. And they stood there for 40 days and they took it. They took it. People, you will never change that which you can tolerate. You're not gonna change it if you can tolerate it. You'd rather put up with the pain until little David arrives. David is first there. He says to them, he hears this giant screaming out, and he, he says to them, hey, how long has this guy been doing this? Oh, David, it's been 40 days now. David says, why has nobody killed him? Have you not heard what he is saying? And there's an immediate response with this young shepherd, what he's saying, he can't say that. I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna do it now. And he takes a slingshot out there and he does the, the, what everybody else thought was being impossible and he brings down the giant. He who is the most aggressive always wins the day. Now I think, people, that we need to get more aggressive against the injustices of this world. I think we need to stand stronger and more aggressively against issues of hopelessness in communities around us of issues of prejudice and, and issues of racism and poverty and all the ugly things of drug addiction and all the stuff that goes along with those social ills, I believe that the church needs to take a far more aggressive stance against those things. He who is the most aggressive wins the day. Let me move on. The next thing you have to do if you wanna fight is you gotta fight a good fight. Now, there are three fights that I see in Scripture. The first fight that I, that I see is, is, the, is the wrong fight. Some people fight the fight, but they don't fight the, the right fight. They fight a, a wrong fight. This is where Jesus confronted the Pharisees. He says, hey, guys, you've got a noble fight here, upholding the law and the Ten Commandments and all of those things. But, guys, it's the wrong fight. Legalism is the wrong fight. And then we read, meet Jesus seeing those who fight a bad fight. You've got a wrong fight, you've got a bad fight. He met with, with two of his disciples one day as they were fighting together. And he goes to his two disciples, he said, guys, what's wrong? Why are you fighting? And they say, oh, Jesus, we're just trying to work out who's gonna be sitting at your right hand in the kingdom. Who's gonna be greater in the kingdom that is to come, him or me? And Jesus says, that's a stupid fight. You don't want to fight that fight of one-upmanship and I'm better than you and I'm more spiritual than you. People, that's a bad fight. He comes across the fight that took place between Mary and Martha, workers against worshipers. Mary's in there worshiping Jesus at his feet and, and Martha's working out there and she wants to pick a fight with Mary because it, it just seems that there seems to be this challenge very often in churches between I'm a worker and I'm a worshiper. It's a stupid fight. That's a stupid fight. There's place for both and there is a time to work and there is a time to worship and we all need to do that. If you want to know what a good fight is, have a look at Jesus. He epitomizes a good fight. One day Jesus, in, uh, in Mark 10, the children came to I was blown away by this dedication of children. I just love that. It's just so wonderful to see parents saying, we're gonna fight a good fight on behalf of our children. 
And, and Jesus confronted with the disciples one day. Kids came to Jesus and the disciples chased them away. And Jesus fought a good fight on behalf of the kids. So bring those children to me. Jesus is always fighting for kids. And any fight that the church takes on that betters children or is a fight for the kids around us across the world, people listen, that's a great fight. One day a leper came to Jesus. They found him out that we're gonna stone him. But Jesus fought a great fight on behalf of that leper. And he walked up, he didn't just touch him, he embraced the man. He embraced the downtrodden, the outcast from society, the one who'd been rejected. Jesus embraced and he stood and he fought a great fight on behalf of the alienated and the rejected in society. That's always a great fight to fight. A woman, a sinful woman was thrown at Jesus' feet and, and he fought a great fight on her behalf as well. That's a great fight. There's a young lady who works for us back at Genesis in South Africa and, and she's involved in a, in a great fight but sometimes it gets quite tough and she wrote to me a letter while I've been here and just describing the nature of the toughness of her fight. And she says this, hey Trevor, after what could only be described as a tumultuous last turn, I honestly wanted to give up and walk away from this community. I know when you read our reports, you often see the good stuff that happens in the prayer requests or two, and maybe even some of the bad stuff, but I'll be honest with you this time and tell you, there is incredible bad stuff happening out here. I'd prefer not to write about it because it feels like I have failed, but maybe we can all begin to see the gravity of the situation. And she goes on to talk about her challenge, but then she says this, but I am reminded. When I'm about to give up on this fight, she says, I'm reminded of this quote by William Booth. Listen to this. This young lady on our team, she's like 24, 25 years old, she writes this. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out and in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there's a poor lost girl on the street, while there remains one dark soul within the light of God, I'll fight and I'll fight to the very end. And I applaud that kid. I say, Simi, that's, that's a good fight. You see, the interesting thing about fighting the good fight is it never says you have to win it. My kid Simi is not winning this fight. She's probably gonna lose it at the end of the day, but that doesn't matter. And it doesn't say you have to win the fight. You have to win the fight against the flesh, but you don't have to win this fight because that's God's fight. All we have to do in according is fight, but we have to fight the good fight. Let me move on. There are two last things that we need to have a look at here. Back at home, we play a game, we call it rugby. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with rugby, but uh, there are times when if you infringe in the, in the rules of rugby, it's a great game. It doesn't look like it's got any rules, but uh, it does. And if you infringe upon the rules of rugby, there, there's a time where, where you might get a yellow card from the referee, which means you have to sit out for 10 minutes in the game. And as I look across the church, I see people who feel that they've been yellow carded in the context of the Christian life or particularly in the church. They may be disillusioned, they may be disappointed, the church wasn't all that it was cut out to be. They may be in defeat, the three terrible Ds, disillusionment, disappointment, and, disappointment and, and defeat. And they feel that they have been yellow carded and they're sitting in what we call the sin bin 
When you get kicked off the rugby field for a yellow card, you sit on a chair on the side of the field. It's called the sin bin. You're only there for 10 minutes, and then you can get back in the game again. It's a penalty because you've messed up. And I know people who have messed up or been messed up who sit on a spiritual chair, a spiritual sin bin, but the intriguing thing with rugby is, is that there are two things. The first thing is the, the, the referee could, if your infringement is bad enough, give you a red card, which means you're off for the whole game if you really mess up. But here we see, amazingly, we see this. We see God never giving red cards. He only gives yellow cards. Moses, you messed up in Egypt. Take a yellow card, 40 years in the wilderness. But at the burning bush, God says, get off the chair, get back in the game. He sees Peter who denied him. And he says, Peter, yellow card, you denied me just for a couple of days. And then he says to Peter at that beautiful breakfast on the beach, Peter, time to get back in the game. It's only a yellow card. People, I want to suggest to you today, if you feel that you're being yellow carded, you may have yellow carded yourself, but for some of you in a group this big, I bet you there are people who are now sitting on the sideline watching church go on. They've been sidelined for whatever reason. People, listen, I've flown 10,000 miles to tell you, get back in the darn game. Get back in the game. Get back in the game. One last thing, my time is gone, is uh, there is a crown. There is a crown. I've read the end of the book. I know who wins. I know the book of Revelation tells us that the ultimate battle between good and evil, God wins. And there is a beautiful picture that I wanna paint as I, as I close today, and it, it comes out of a verse in Colossians chapter two, uh, verse 15, where it speaks of the triumphant Christ dragging with him all the, all the spoils of the spiritual war that Jesus has. And I get this picture in Revelation, we see the picture of the new Jerusalem. Now in the old days when a Roman general had done well at war, he was granted a triumph, which meant that he could walk into the city with his soldiers and with the plunder of war and all the enemy now bound up, he could bring them in. But they would do it in a particular way. The first half of the army would walk into the city. The city would be painted and decorated. The crowds would be there cheering this victorious general. And the first half of his army would come in. Then he would come in on, riding on his horse, on the emperor's horse. Behind him would be the, all the plunders of war and all the enemy that he had captured. And behind that would be the other half of his army. And they would march triumphantly into the city to the applause of the people. There's a beautiful picture here for us. There will come a day. New Jerusalem will be there and Jesus will come and there will be a great triumphant entry. And just imagine in your mind, the first half, the Old Testament saints, there's Moses and Elijah and, and Elisha and Jacob and, and all of them marching into heaven, followed by John the Baptist, he's the last. Nobody wants to hang with John the Baptist, they put him at the back. And John the Baptist is coming into heaven, and then comes Jesus riding on his beautiful horse, and in his train, and behind him, he's dragging in all the, all the evilness of Satan and all the, those bad demons, and he's had victory over them. Ha <laughs> ha. But then the last half of the army, people, that's us. That's us. And we will go marching in, and there will be Lake Point's church marching in. Norwegian Settlers Church, we're at the back of the line, so you'll be in the front because you're so spiritual here. 
you know, and you'll be in the front of the line and you will be marching into that great city to the applause of, of heaven and the war will be over. It will all be done and dusted. It will be finished. Man, I'm looking forward to that day. I wonder if the man who wrote that song, when the saints go marching in, had this in mind, when he wrote that song, the saints marching into Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Why don't we sing that song quickly when I'm finished? Oh, when the saints, sing with me, go marching in. That's good. Oh, when the saints go marching in, dum, 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 I wanna be in that number. Oh, when the saints go marching in. I hope you're in that number. When the saints go marching, when we win. Let's pray. God, thank you for this amazing passage. Pray that we would fight, not the wrong fight, not a bad fight, but a good fight. We look forward to, Lord, just moving out from here today, taking the high ground of prayer, not flirting with the flesh, but offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, flying close to the flame of your holiness, making that sacrifice into an investment. And if we've been yellow-carded, God, I pray, you're not gonna do it for us, that we have to do that for ourselves, that if people here feel they've been yellow-carded and they're sitting on the side of God, I pray that they would move back into the field and, and get back in the fight again. And we look forward to that final day when you will receive the victory and the triumph that is yours and the war will be over. God, we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, yeah. folks, for having me. Thank you.